It's good to see you guys this morning. I'm glad you're able to make it. It's always tough when we're competing against such beautiful days outside. Uh, if you're a, a little kid in elementary school and you'd like to hang out with some elementary school kids, Miss Jessica's over there, Daniel's over there, gather with them. Uh, Hanson, if you're high school, middle school, Hanson's over there, he'd love to hang out with you. Feel free to join them. Now, if you're new or visiting, my name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving as pastor in this place at Wellspring. Uh, Welcome to our story and our journey. If you're wondering what this is, this is a tabernacle or a booth. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Danielle Carpenter. I don't know if she's here today, but she helped me build this. She's awesome. Super helpful. Thank you, Danielle. Now, if you're wondering why there's a tabernacle up here, Jesus in chapter 7, he's at the Feast of Tabernacles, but... Full disclosure, I've not always known about tabernacles. When I was in my early 20s, I was sort of curious about Jewish holidays, so I kind of went through a year, and I uh, did some of the Jewish feasts. And the first time I ever did tabernacles, I was dating my wife, and I invited her over. And the idea is, you would have like a meal, you'd sit in there and eat it, and so just before this, I was in the Peace Corps in Kenya, and I didn't have access to a knife, so whenever I ate vegetables or like made a salad, as I would like take a carrot, spit it into the salad, right? So I did this with all the vegetables that I was eating. Fast forward a couple years, I'm celebrating tabernacles. My wife-to-be is coming in the room. She says, I need to use the restroom. I start to make the salad. She comes out, mid-spit, freaks out. No, not really. She was very gracious. She was wondering, why are you spitting in my salad? I said, oh, it's connected to tabernacles. That's how they did it. Not so much, just kidding. Anyway, the point being, whenever I think of this, that's the story I think of. Me spitting in my salad, the most shameful moment of my dating relationship with my wife. Now, if you're joining us now uh, and you missed a couple weeks ago, so the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is at this feast. Now, there's three pilgrimage festivals in ancient Israel. There's Passover, which happens in spring, Pentecost, which happens in the summer, and then tabernacles, which happens in the fall. Now, if you're poor, uh, you know, most of Israel, they're farmers. They don't have the ability to leave and go on this pilgrimage uh, during the spring or the summer because they're harvesting. But tabernacles, since it happens in the fall, it's at the end of harvest, it's the most attended. Now, Jesus is likely coming from Capernaum, somewhere up there in Galilee, going down to Jerusalem. It's about an 85-mile pilgrimage, sort of like walking from here to Mountain View via the 101. So they're coming, right? Uh, This is harvest has just ended. Um, They're remembering in the Feast of Tabernacles that God walks through the wilderness with them, right? So you have this idea of God rescues the Hebrew people from slavery in Egypt. Then what happens, right? He guides them through the wilderness for 40 years. During that time, the people of Israel live in tabernacles. So once they get to the promised land, they then redo, they sort of remember this wandering, this God guiding them through the wilderness by living in these tabernacles once a year. Because it happens in the fall and the end of harvest, it also becomes a time when they pray for rain uh, on the thirsty land to water their crops. And there's a couple underlying or defining stories that anchor this celebration. One is during the time that they're wandering in the wilderness, Moses uh, taps on a rock, right? The people are wandering in the wilderness. They're looking for water. Moses taps on a rock. God makes water flow out of this rock, which satisfies the thirst of the wandering Israelites. 
Another story is in uh, Ezekiel 47. There's this vision that the prophet Ezekiel has of water flowing out of the temple. And it flows from Jerusalem to this place called the Dead Sea, where it's really, there's a lot of salt and very little grows. And the idea is the water flows from the temple into the Dead Sea. And it's this picture of the flourishing of God when the kingdom comes and that all the land is going to burst forth in green and in produce and in life. This is what Ezekiel says. This is uh, verses uh, 12 through, I think, 14. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Right? So you have this picture of the kingdom of God coming and what's going to happen. There's going to be this bursting force of life in the desert. Now, if you're sort of a biblical scholar, you'll sort of think, oh yeah, that's the same image that John will use in the book of Revelation. When the kingdom comes, right, the stream will flow out of the temple and what? There will be green that will pop up and the leaves will be for the healing of the nations. Right, so these are the stories that are being told during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, uh, we started this feast. Jesus gets up on the fourth day, halfway through the feast, and he starts teaching Where we're going to pick up is in the middle of that, likely on day four. And what I'm going to do in these, basically, is about 10 verses. Uh, I'm going to sort of chunk it into three sections and sort of go through progressively. But I'm going to spend the majority of the time on the last two verses, which you'll hopefully see why in a minute. All right, so this is verses 25 to 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? Right, so Jesus is teaching. And people are like, hey, isn't this guy uh, the one they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now what you'll see throughout the Gospel of John is this pattern. Jesus starts teaching and then there's disagreements about one person thinks, yes, he must be the Christ. And another person's like, no way. Then you have these different opinions. Some people want to kill him. Some people want to make him king. And what we see here is that some of the people are like, hey, I thought you guys were going to arrest him, but you're not doing it. Have you changed your minds? Do you think he's really the Christ? Now, Christ is simply a Greek way of saying Mashiach or Messiah, the anointed one, right? So that's Hebrew versus Greek. And what happens is the Messiah is the one who's going to come and establish that kingdom on earth where what we prayed about earlier, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. This idea of God's will is going to be done when the Messiah comes and the people align their heart and life with him. And they're wondering, hey, is this the guy, the Christ? Now, verse 27 sort of introduces why he might not be, right? They're like, but we know where this guy comes from, which is sort of an interesting thing. So apparently in the first century, there's this idea among some circles that they won't know where the Messiah comes from, like the village he was raised in. So they're like, well, Jesus, we know you were raised in Nazareth, so it's probably not you, you know? 
They also ignore the fact that Jesus, or didn't know, that he was actually born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem actually fulfills a prophetic promise in Micah 5 too. But aside from that, clearly they're confused. The question then, sort of to this question, Jesus responds, yeah, yeah, okay, remember guys, as he said this multiple times in John already, I come from the Father, the Father has sent me, and I do whatever the Father says. There's this alignment between the Father and the Son. Jesus says this, the crowd is still divided, they're still wondering, I don't know, maybe he is the Christ, right? He's done so many things. I mean, really, could a Christ do more than he's already done? Right, which then brings us to verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you for a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. All right, a few things just culturally. So the Pharisees uh, in, well, I don't have a map of it, but anyway, up in the Galilee, it's called the Rabbinic Triangle. You have Capernaum, Bethsaida, and and, uh, Chorazin. It's the Rabbinic Triangle. That's where most of the rabbis are produced. That's sort of their like, Harvard, right? This is like their educational Mecca where all the rabbis come from. Most of those people are Pharisees. So they're now coming down from Galilee to Jerusalem and they're sort of like seeing Jesus there. They're like, "Mm, this is not good, right? So what do they do? They go to the Sanhedrin. Now this is the political leaders in Jerusalem, right? So he goes to them and they have like a temple police force-ish. They're like ushers meets police force. Anyway, So you have this sort of police force in the temple and the Pharisees go to them and are like, you have to arrest this guy. And there's this interesting thing that happens now. Jesus sort of gets whiff of this, gets gets wind of it, and he's like, all right, fine. He sort of does this like teasy hide and seek thing. He's like, I'm speaking now, you can find me, but one day you'll look for me and you won't find me, which is confusing, right? Because he's referring to the fact that he is going to die be resurrected, and then ascend to the right hand of the Father where they won't be able to find him. But they don't know this. So then they do this sort of funny thing where they're like, well, I wonder if he's going to hide among the, the Greeks. And so they're sort of, it seems like their tone is something like, oh, he's going to try and teach the Greeks. They won't listen to him, which is kind of ironic because Jesus will die, Right? The Holy Spirit will come upon the church. Paul and others will go to the Greeks. And within a few years, the Greeks will all, or tons of them will start believing in this gospel. But for the time being, they're like, what is this guy saying? You're going to go to the Greeks? What? Then we get to 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom those he believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right, so remember, we were on day four of the feast. Remember, seven days long. Most of his teaching happens on day four at Tabernacles. Now it says in verse 37, okay, we're on the final day. So this is the last day of the feast. 
a few sort of points of cultural uh, import are important here. All right, so what would happen each day of the feast is, maybe put a map, the map up, I think that's next. So what would happen is a priest would take some sort of water container and he would walk from the temple down to the pool of Siloam. Do you see it on the bottom right? So imagine it's sort of like a parade route. So the priest is walking down, he goes to the pool, he dunks the water, pilgrims are on both sides, they're watching this, this is exciting, all of Israel's there. He takes the water, and he goes up to the altar, and then he pours the water on the altar. During this process, there's a few different uh, psalms that are sung, mostly from Psalm 119, Uh, and then there's this really interesting moment. He's just poured the water on the altar, And to symbolize the completion of the ceremony, everyone in the crowd says, raise up your hand to the priest. The priest raises his hand, it's quiet, and that's the signal that the rite is complete. Now I want you to imagine, you have this huge throng of people, they've just watched the priest pour water on the altar as a way of saying, all right, We're sort of leaning into this water blessing of God. Remember the Moses and the water flowing out of the rock. Remember this future hope that the water is going to flow out of the temple like in Ezekiel. Priest raises his hand. It's quiet. And Jesus stands up and he says this. In the midst of the quiet, in the midst of this ceremony, he says this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, As the scriptures has said, out of him will flow rivers of living water. So theologian named Beasley Murray writes in the word biblical commentary, he says, certainly if Jesus stood and cried out at the moment when the priest at the altar had lifted up his hand to signify the completion of the rite, the effect of the cry on the multitude would have been a thunderclap from heaven. Everyone would have known whose cry it was and its significance. Namely, that everything embodied in the right of past experience of salvation, of present prayer and future hope was available and offered through Jesus. Right? That Jesus was there when Moses tapped on the rock and the water fed the people wandering through the wilderness. That Jesus is the one they are praying to when they're asking for the rains to come to satisfy their thirsty land. That Jesus is the one through whom the kingdom will come that will lead to the water flowing out of the temple and bringing life to the entire desert as a symbol of what it will be like when the kingdom comes and people experience the life and flourishing of God. Jesus is saying, as they're going to the temple, they're on this pilgrimage. He's saying, you don't need to go to the temple. Come to me. That I am the center of your life now. Now, if you've been around our journey through the book of John, you'll know that there's, there's like echoes. You're like, I think I've heard something similar to this. Right? Jesus meets a woman at a well in John 4, and this is what he says to her. Right, they're at a well, it's uh, Jacob's well, and he says this, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Do you hear the similarities, some of those echoes? Marion Meyer Thompson is a fuller prof, uh, wrote a commentary on John. She says this about both those passages. Both passages assume that Jesus gives the living water, the machayim, which becomes a never-failing, self-replenishing stream within the believer. Right? In chapter 6, Jesus also says, or he's talking about being the bread of life. He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. But he also says this, whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Right? So you have these sort of building moments. Imagine people are following Jesus. They're hearing his teaching. They're like, oh, I think he said something like this before. But let's look at this specifically, what he says today. Right? Verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, right? Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Raises his hand, it's quiet. He says this, and what he's saying is, you've done these rites, you've done this pilgrimage, but are you still thirsty? You've done these things that you think are going to satisfy you, but in the end, are you still thirsty? He begins with a question. He says, if you are still thirsty, if the things you're doing are not deeply satisfying you, not giving you the refreshment you need, what do you do? He invites them to action. He says, come to me. You've just walked 85 miles to come to the temple to celebrate tabernacles. Jesus is saying, now come to me. Be pilgrims to my presence. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow out of them. And he's saying, hey, come to me and guess what? If you believe in me, trust me, out of you will flow living waters. More than the water poured on the altar. More than the water that comes out of the rock. More and even as much as the water that will flow out of the temple and bring life to the entire desert. Come to me. I will satisfy your thirst. And then we get to verse 39. He says this. This is sort of going from, Jesus has said this, now John gives a little commentary. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So you have this process. The Father sends the Son. The Son takes on human flesh, enters human life. But Jesus, right, what's going to happen? He's going to be crucified. These people that are trying to kill him will one day kill him. But then he'll be resurrected by the power of God. He will ascend to the right hand of the Father and he will send the Holy Spirit down to his followers and then through the Spirit they will experience life. This life that Jesus is talking about. The kingdom life that he promises. So that's kind of the text for today. That's what we're leaning into. And what I want to do now is actually talk about two things. I want to talk about what and I want to talk about how. So what does this mean for us today? So how do you take this and sort of apply it into our context or translate it into our context? And then how do we actually enflesh it, make it real so we can experience this? Okay? All right, what? What we see in the first century is there's disagreement, right? There's this idea of the Messiah is going to come, who's going to establish the kingdom. There's disagreement about how this is going to happen, who this person would be, right? So there's various theories of what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to thrive and flourish, right? And you see the disagreement happening. Some people are like, this guy's going to do it. Other people are like, kill him or whatever. 
Now, in our context, it's a little different, right? So we don't have necessarily rival theories of who the Messiah will be. That's not our primary question. But you see a lot of dialogue in our culture and disagreement on what does it mean to flourish? What does it mean to live good lives? There's lots of different opinions out there, isn't there? And there's a couple things in our culture that I just kind of want to highlight that I think are dominant thrusts in our culture that sort of influence and shape how we see the world. And then I want to talk about how Jesus speaks into that. One is this. There's a sort of a massive push in our, in our culture that life needs to be maximized on earth, right? It's called imminent worldview, right? So uh, everything about life, maximizing it, experiencing life, flourishing, happens before you breathe your last breath. That is like the entire thrust of our cultural push, right? And it begins with this. One, you have to do what you want. So if you want to thrive and flourish in our culture, what do you need to do? You need to align your wants with your life. And if you do that, you're on a good track to having a flourishing life, right? There's truth in that. If you're always doing what you hate, it's hard to like really feel like you're alive, most likely, right? Uh, Second push would be you're supposed to accumulate awesome experiences, This is like a really important thrust in our culture right now, that like awesome lives have cool travel adventures, right? You're doing an awesome river cruise. You're backpacking in Europe. You're doing these things. And there's this push in our culture to accumulate experiences. This could be having great food, having good coffee, whatever. You know, it could be um, whatever. I, I could just sort of go on and on. You kind of get this. You feel it. So that when someone says, what did you do last week? What do you, first, the first thing you say, oh, I went to this good restaurant. I had this awesome vacation. That's how we narrate meaningful life. Three, we sort of try and achieve something, right? Like the good life, you achieve, accomplish something, don't you? Whether it's at work or in a hobby or whatever, but you accomplish something and it's through that accomplishment that you generate meaning. You generate value and worth, right? So if you're doing what you want, you're passionate about what you do right? You're accumulating cool experiences and you're achieving something. You are like the rock star of our culture. That's who we try and emulate. Let me give you an analogy. It's kind of like this. Imagine our life is like a plant or a garden. Our culture says, if you want that plant or the garden to thrive, what you need to do is water it, okay? So what you do is you grab your bucket of water, right? You walk around, you water it. Oh, it's a good experience. Oh, that brings life. What do you do? You accomplish something. You got a promotion. That brings life. Um, you uh, aligned a little more with what you like in life. You know, you shut down the shoulds. You did what you wanted, and now you're watering a little bit, and you feel like you're getting life, right? So whether it's cold outside or hot outside, if it's really hot, you might need to water more, you know? That's sort of the paradigm that we live in. I think, does that sort of, do you feel that in our culture, right? Okay. Yeah, I think we feel that on a visceral level. So it's into that that Jesus says this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. One of the things you'll notice about our cultural paradigm is it's all on us. We are the waterer. 
If you want to thrive, it's on you. And if you fail, it's your fault. That is the thrust of our culture. So Jesus says to me, hey, if in the midst of that watering your life to make sure you thrive and flourish, Jesus says to us, are you thirsty? Are your accomplishments, are your experiences, is your sort of doing what you want, is that bringing you the deep life that you seek? Or do you wonder at night maybe, is there something more? Is there something more to life than what I am doing? He says, are you still thirsty? And if you are, he says, come to me, right? He invites us to action. He invites us to say, hey, set aside the counterfeit gods of our culture, which say that they will meaningfully satisfy you and come to him. Make him the center. Not your travel adventures, not your work, not all those other things, but make him the center, right? We use this in our language all the time, this idea of centered set. Jesus is inviting us to set our heart and our life, make him the center, and no matter where we are, to move towards him. Right? Not to put ourselves at the culture. In our cultural narrative, we are at the center. God is at best one of the stars in the constellation of our life. And what he is saying is, put me at the center. Come to me. And if we do that, what will happen? Right? If we believe in him, trust in him, not simply that he exists, but that he is trustworthy, what will happen? We will experience life. That the river will flow out of us, giving us the life that we seek. Let's use another analogy. So if our cultural moment is like watering the plants, Jesus' frame is more like this. There's a garden, and under that garden is a wellspring. And that water is feeding those plants during hot and during cold, during the fall and during the spring. And it's not up to us to water. The God is the source through the Spirit that nourishes the plant of our garden, the plants of our garden, so that it thrives. So that's the what. Now the question is how. How do you respond to to this? I think option one is kind of independence. So this is, all right, Tony said this message. What do I need to do? I need to try harder. Like, oh, but what you're doing, obviously, in that moment is you're picking up the little, the watering can, and now you're trying to, like, do the spiritual thing somehow. Like, if you just water it enough, it will thrive. There's this movie in the theaters right now called, um, what's it called? Alex, uh, Alex Honnold. It's called Free Solo. There we go. So Alex Honnold is arguably one of the best rock climbers in the world. That's El Capitan. It's 3,000-foot rock. Alex Honnold, what he does, he climbs this without a rope and without support. And I think what we do in our spiritual lives is we hear a message like this, we think, try harder, and then we think, okay, I'm going to go up to the base of El Cap, and I'm going to try and climb to the top. My friends, you are not good enough rock climbers. Nor am I. But this is what we do. We think, oh, I want my life to flourish. What do I want to do? All right, start climbing. We are not Alex Honnold. Jesus is. 
And what we try and do is we adopt this sense of like, we're going to climb the mountain, we're going to do it. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. Let me climb it. That is the center of the gospel, is that Jesus climbs up El Cap, not us. That we are recipients of the life of God, we are not earners of it. Which brings me to option two. Option two is a picture of dependence. Jesus doesn't say, come to me and then try really hard. He doesn't say, come to me, now do the rest of your life living for me. He says, come to me and drink. Trust in me. In our culture, we're taught, yeah, you do it. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's up to me. It's by the mercy and grace of God that we experience life. In our culture, it's all about the imminent. It's all about what you experience today. So if you rock it, what happens? You experience life today. You have these awesome experiences. You get promoted. You achieve stuff. You sort of are doing what you're passionate about, and you experience life today. In the gospel, maybe we experience life today. That's part of it, but we live within an internal perspective that the full flourishing of life happens maybe even after we're dead, when the kingdom comes and we live with God and one another when sin has been taken out of human life. So we experience in part now what we will experience fully later. And it is all by the mercy and grace of God. You know, in large part, right, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus saying, come to me and I will satisfy your thirst. And it's about be with me. Listen to my voice. And we don't switch at some point from come to me, be with me, to then do it for me. And the question then is, how do we lean into dependence? I mean, there's two sort of principles here. One is remember. And I think in order to remember our dependence requires that we take some time to just space to be with God and listen to his voice. So this last week, we had a worship night. On Wednesday, there was a small group of us there, and it was this time just to slow down into the presence of God, just to breathe deep. And there was this one moment I was just literally laying on my back, and Chuck was leading us, and he he just started singing this one line: "That you are my King." And we just sang it over and over. And in that moment, I went from sort of anxious and burdened and striving to just letting go into the grace and glory of God, right? That he is the king, I don't have to be. Do we have rhythms in our life where we slow down enough and can just be with Jesus and hear his voice reminding us who he is and who we are? Do you have rhythms like that? That's one of the reasons we are consistently, or I'm consistently talking about this idea of ABLE, right? So ABLE is an acronym that defines some of our practices as a body. A stands for attend. And what I mean by that, what we mean by that is, do we have rhythms each week to attend to the presence and voice of God? Or are we just sort of marching through life? Do we have points where we're slowing down into the presence of God and allowing him to speak to us, define our identity, define how we live and move in the world? Right? That he is the primary and we are at best responders to his voice and presence. 
L is learn, right? So this is learning from the scriptures, right? We want to have rhythms in the week that we learn from the scriptures so that we are reminded of who God is and who we are, right? Not so we can become a biblical encyclopedia. The point of the scriptures is to reveal the heart of the Father, who Jesus is, so that we can say, ah, you are my king. You are the waterer of my soul and my life. Do we have rhythms of being with and hearing the voice of God so we remember that we are dependent on him, that he is the shelter of our days, that he is the waterer of our souls? And secondly, we need not only things to help us remember, we also need reinforcements to help us stay on a try and true path. Right? Do we have people who are going to help us along the way? I can tell you without fail in my life, I am broken. I have a propensity for my heart to wander that if I do not have a community of people or friends around me that are helping me seek Jesus and put him at the center, I guarantee you in time, my story has said, you know, that I will drift. Guaranteed. It's just simply a matter of time. My heart will drift if I do not have people that are helping me along the way. We are not Alex Honnold. We cannot just do it ourselves. The question is, do you have people in your life that can help you on that path? Ideally, the most local people, people that you're worshiping with in this place. So one of the challenges of our life together at Wellspring right now is that we did basically a church plant in here 15 months ago. And now, you know, 75% of the people in this room have been here less than six months. So most of you don't know anyone in here or you're just starting to get to know people. So what do we do? If we're looking for people to help reinforce our life, to make Jesus at the center, what do we do? I was trying to think in a super practical way what that would look like. I think the first is this. If we prioritize Sunday morning and coming here, and then not only that, we hang out after Right? One of the reasons we do this every week is we take time to just hang out in here is so we can actually know a person or two. But it takes a little risk, like you're going to actually introduce yourself to someone. That's where it starts. And then ideally what happens is we develop one to two interdependent relationships. What I mean by that is this, that there's one or two people in this body that actually know you. They know what you're afraid of. They know what you're dreaming of. They know where you're going to fall off and where you're going to rock it. And they're helping you to put Jesus at the center of your life. You have one or two of those people. You're not just doing it alone. And ideally, you're not doing it partnered with this independent friend that's in Virginia, right? But someone who's here. Because they're actually going to see your life. Your friend in Virginia, you can sort of Facebook resume self like, Look how awesome I am. You can't edit what everyone sees. Three, I think, you know, if you develop some of those relationships, I think one of the best ways to do it is to be in, we have these well communities. We only have two now, but we're going to keep launching more. But on Monday and Tuesday nights, this is just where people come together and try and seek Jesus together in community. Provides reinforcement so we can make Jesus the center and be reminded of our dependence on him. 
And then going into the new year, we'll, we'll start launching, I don't know, I haven't figured out a name, but something like DNA groups. Places that are just like uh, a way for us to figure out who we are. What is the DNA of this place? But maybe four to six week classes that even if you're crazy busy, maybe you can prioritize four to six weeks where you can get to know a few people and focus on values of this place so we can move forward together. I mean, there's some practical ways, right? We need the ways to remember that we are dependent. What do you have in your life? And two, we need some people, reinforcements to keep us focused on Jesus, the one who is our shelter, right? The one who is the wellspring of life. Now, throughout church history, one of the ways that the church has remembered their dependence on God, that Jesus is the one who died for them, resurrected them, right, and is going to be the life-giving presence for them is by celebrating communion together. That's what we're going to do now. I'm going to invite the worship team up, uh, and then if you're going to serve communion, maybe you can just come to the front. Um, We'll start there. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples. And they were eating bread and they were drinking wine. And he picked up the loaf of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he picked up the wine. And he said, this is my blood that is shed for you so that sins may be forgiven. Take and drink. And he did this as a reminder that we are dependent on his sacrifice, on his love in order to experience unity with him fellowship among ourselves and as a way to anticipate the life that he is bringing into the world. Through his body, through his sacrifice, we will experience life and the love we seek. What we're going to do is we're going to have a moment uh, to just sort of ponder what does it look like before we celebrate communion to put Jesus back at the center of our lives. Maybe you've drifted a little bit. Maybe you're wandering a little bit. What would it look like for you in this moment to say, Jesus, you are my king. I want to worship you. And the practical way we're going to respond is we're going to all stand up and we're going to move forward together as a way of saying as individuals and as a full body, Jesus, we want to seek you. We want to come to you, that you are the one who will satisfy my thirst.